0: Hello again. We're going to keep Acts 14 open. That's the chapter we're digging into tonight and your outline will help you as well as we go. Let's pray. Gracious Father, thank you again for the message of your Son. Please help us now as we see that message grow and spread in the book of Acts. Help us to be challenged and encouraged. Uh, Help us to be spurred on by the example of Paul and Barnabas. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we're going to start the sermon with some divisive issues. These are some huge issues that have been debated in families, in friendship circles, in online forums for decades. Now, The first divisive issue is cats or dogs. Uh, are cats better or are dogs better? Let's get a show of hands for cats. Just a few, and a show of hands for dogs. Okay, much more, very divisive, isn't it? Very divisive, that issue. Our second divisive issue is, it's even, it's even worse, Coke or Pepsi. Uh, show of hands for Coke, show of hands for Pepsi. That's, oh wow, that's more even than I thought it was. Coke's better, isn't it? Like Yeah, that's what I think. Um, the third divisive issue, this is the biggest one of all. Does the toilet roll go over? Or does the toilet roll go under? Don't put your hands up. This is too divisive. This is, we can't talk about this. I actually did some research on this one. Uh, here are some t- statistics that I read that are apparently true. Uh, apparently, 70% of people prefer the role to go over. So there you go. Uh, 20% of people get agitated if it's not the way that they want it to be. 19% of people have admitted to turning it the other way around in someone else's house. Show of hands of who's done, no, no, we won't get it. Oh. <laughs> there you go, you people are very bold. Now we've been studying the book of Acts and not, you know, the, the divisive issue of toilet paper is really nothing compared to the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is nothing else that divides humanity like the good news of Jesus, the fact that he died, the news that he's risen from the dead, it has divided the nations, it's changed the world. So let's think and see what we've seen in Acts recently, so that we can be up to speed and ready to go into chapter 14. So last week, in chapter 13, we saw the beginning of Paul's first missionary journey. So the Apostle Paul, he went on three main uh, mission journeys to preach the gospel, to plant churches. This is the first one. And last week, we saw the first bit of it. Uh, Phil took us through uh, Paul's travels from Antioch to Antioch which sounds a little bit confusing because there are several towns called Antioch. Uh, So here's the first, Antioch, circled in green, far there in the east, Syrian Antioch. This is Paul's home base for all his missions. Uh, They're like his sending church. He's their link missionary, if you like. And he starts all his journeys from Antioch in Syria. And Phil showed us last week how Paul travelled through Cyprus, through Perga, and then up to the other Antioch to Pisidian Antioch, up there. Paul and Barnabas, they went there, they preached the gospel, and the response was division. It was divided. Many people believed. They came to faith and salvation in Jesus. That's what the gospel brings. But what else happened? Persecution happened. The unbelieving Jews, they stirred up the people and they chased Paul and Barnabas out of town. And so off to the next town they go, to Iconium. And that's where we start today. Uh, So you can see from the outline where we're going today, uh, we see the second half of this journey of Paul, starting with the growth and persecution that happened in Iconium. So today, Iconium uh, is the city of Konya in Turkey. It's one of the biggest cities in Turkey today. Uh, But back then, it was part of the broader area of Galatia. So you know the book of Galatians in the New Testament. So, what happens in Iconium? Well, much the same as Antioch and everywhere else. There's division. See, the gospel brings growth, it bears fruit, but it also brings persecution. So, look at verse 1 with me. It says the same thing happened in Iconium. They entered the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. So things rolled out the same as other towns. They, they rocked up to the Jewish synagogue, to those who should know God, who should recognize that Jesus is the Messiah, and a great number of people, a multitude of both Jews and Greeks, or, or non-Jews, believed. So straight away, the gospel is bearing fruit. It's beautiful. The gospel brings people to know the Lord, both Jews and Gentiles, and they believe and turn to him. But straight away... There's also persecution. There's opposition. Just like before, there are some Jews who refuse to believe. They refuse to accept Jesus is the Lord, the Messiah. Their hearts are hard. They don't like Paul and the attention he's getting. And so look at verse 2. They poison the minds of the Gentiles, the non-Jews. They poison their minds against Paul and Barnabas, which is, again, that work of Satan that we saw last week, didn't we? Turning people away from the gospel holding them back from hearing about Jesus and being saved. It's a horrible way uh, to live. It's horrible sin. But what you see here is the perseverance of Paul and Barnabas. See, what do they do when this opera- opposition arises? Verse 3, they stay for a while, maybe weeks, maybe months, and they speak boldly in reliance on Jesus. That's amazing, isn't it? See, how many of us in that situation would have run away and left at the first sign of opposition. No, Paul and Barnabas, relying on the strength Jesus gives, trusting in him to keep them safe, they keep speaking. They're bold. They don't hold back. And it says Jesus then himself testifies to the truth of their words. How does he do that? It says he, by granting miracles, by allowing Paul and Barnabas to work amazing miracles. Now, we don't know what the miracles are, uh, but the best bet is that they're healings. Supernatural healings of people who are sick, uh, healing with just a word or a touch from Paul or Barnabas. Now, we don't know what the miracles are, uh, but that's actually kind of part of the point. See, I wonder if you notice how that sentence is worded. It says, The miracles of Jesus, sorry, the miracles are Jesus' testimony or his witness. Testimony to what? Look at what verse 3 says. The Lord testified to the message or the word of his grace. See, in one sense, every miracle of Jesus is good and wonderful in and of itself. When Jesus healed people as he walked the earth, when Jesus healed people through Paul and Barnabas, if Jesus chooses to heal people today, well, that is wonderful. Each healing miracle of Jesus is a wonderful gift from him. And each miracle impacts the people's lives for the better As Jesus releases people from the power of Satan, as he he reverses the curse of sin and the effects of sin in people's lives, those things are true. We, We shouldn't deny that. We should rejoice in those miracles of Jesus. But did you notice that the focus isn't really on the miracles? We don't even know what the miracles were. We're just guessing that they were healings. Now instead, Luke who wrote Acts, and Luke Luke and Paul, they're very clear that the miracles have a greater purpose. The miracles are a testimony to the greater reality. The miracles are a witness to the gospel, to the message of his grace, to the true healing that we have in Jesus, the forgiveness of our sin and eternal life. These miracles, they're God's stamp of approval that the apostles are telling the truth. The gospel is straight from God. It is true. From time to time, you might encounter someone who claims to be a Christian and who also makes a really big deal about miracles. There should be miracles today, they say, happening all the time. Jesus wants you to be healthy and well now, they say. But here we see Jesus has a greater concern than that. His concern is that people hear and believe the good news about him, that they receive eternal life, eternal healing, and when they're raised with Jesus on the last day. That's the message of his grace, that the miracles are pointing beyond themselves and to. So the miracles, good as they are, they're meant to point us to the good news of Jesus, to his grace, his kindness shown in his death and resurrection. They're meant to bring people to belief in the message of grace, in the man of grace, Jesus And so I wonder, do you know that grace? If you've seen the miracles of Jesus in the scriptures, if you've seen a miracle in real life, I don't know, maybe you have, do you know what they point to, the grace of Jesus? His, His kindness, the forgiveness that he has won for your sin, the forgiveness for all your rebellion against him, the wonderful news that he's risen, that he reigns. I pray that you know that news. And then if you don't know it, we want to help you to find it, to know it. You are welcome to come and find out more with us. That would be our great delight. But even the miracles didn't persuade everyone in Iconium. Now the persecution ramps up. The city is divided. Some with Paul, some against Paul. This newfangled teaching divides the city, and so a secret plot is made to ambush Paul, to stone him to death, and so they find out, and then they run away to the next town. So for Paul, there's a a time to stay and fight, and then there's a time to go and flee. So they move on to the towns of Lystra and Derby, But look at verse 7. Are they afraid now? Do they hold back? Verse 7, and there in Lystra and Derby, they kept evangelizing. See, they don't hold back. They keep sharing the message of grace wherever they go. See, we're meant to see the boldness, the perseverance of Paul and Barnabas here. We're meant to see that the good news of Jesus is worth it, worth the risk, worth the pain or the potential pain because it's the wonderful message of Jesus and his grace that brings forgiveness and bears fruit in every place it's proclaimed as people believe and turn to Jesus. Well, that leads us now to the incredible events that happen in Lystra. See, Paul and Barnabas, they flee and they head to the next town, which is Lystra in Lycaonia. Uh, And now this is in the region of Galatia still, and that's still part of modern-day Turkey today. Uh, Have a look with me. We're going to spend a little bit more time here before we wrap up uh, just at the end. So there's four or so incredible things, amazing events that happen in Lystra. The first is in verse 8. Read it with me. It's incredible. It says in Lystra, a man without strength in his feet, lame from birth and who had never walked, sat and heard Paul speaking. After observing him closely and seeing that he had faith to be healed, Paul said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he jumped up and started to walk around. That story speaks for itself, doesn't it? As this lame man who had suffered and struggled all his life, as he hears about Jesus, the Lord, the Saviour, the Healer, his faith began to awaken in his heart. God was at work in him. And Paul, he could see it. I wonder if he could see it in his eyes or he could see in his face the eagerness to hear everything Paul was saying. And so Paul sees this as a precious opportunity. He can help this man. Well, really, Jesus can. And he can show everyone listening that the message of grace that he's speaking about, that the gospel of Jesus is legit, is true and powerful. So by the power of Jesus, he heals this man. Stand up on your feet. He Jumps up and is dancing around the room, rejoicing. And that leads us to the second extraordinary event in Lystra. See, the crowd, they respond to this and they make a massive mistake. They misunderstood what Paul has done. Paul wanted to show them the power of Jesus, the Lord of all. Paul wanted to validate the message of grace that he was speaking to them so that people would turn to Jesus and believe in him. But what happens? Basically the opposite of what Paul intended. Look at verse 11. It's a great story. It says, When the crowd saw what Paul had done, They raised their voices, saying in the Lycaonian language, the gods have come down to us in the form of men. And they started to call Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the main speaker. See, instead of recognizing that Jesus is Lord, the people conclude that uh, that Paul and Barnabas must be gods. They must be the local gods that we worship, uh, uh, the Greek gods of Zeus and Hermes. And so this starts up this, this crazed frenzy of worship. The temple of Zeus is just down the road, and so the priest of Zeus, he grabs a whole bunch of animals and plants and reeds and brings them to Paul and Barnabas. They're going to worship him and sacrifice to them and pay homage to them. And Paul and Barnabas, maybe at first, they didn't know the language. Maybe at first they didn't know what was happening. But then pretty soon they catch the drift, and then they are shocked. They are just horrified that this is happening. This is the opposite of what they wanted. And they're so overwhelmed and they're so desperate that they tear their clothes. In that culture, that was a way of expressing great emotion or deep horror. And they try to shout over the frenzy of the crowd and the chaos. Paul rebukes them, but he takes it as an opportunity to preach as well. See, look at verse 15 with me. This is Paul's very short kind of sermon in response. He shows them, first of all, why their response Is totally wrong. He says, Men, why are you doing these things? We are men also with the same nature as you. That's the first reason this is wrong. Paul and Barnabas are not gods, they are men. But he goes on, We're men just like you, and we are proclaiming good news to you that you should turn from these worthless things to the living God. Now, there's just a few. In those few short words, Paul says some pretty huge things. He says some big things. The first big thing he says is that to turn away from your religion is good news. See, the Apostle Paul isn't, and he never was, politically correct. He says it is good news to turn away from the religion of your culture, even the religion of your family, in order to turn to Jesus. So this is a truth that comes up through the Scriptures. Paul says it clearly here, idolatry. False religions are worthless. He drives it home even further in the rest of that verse. Have a look there. He says, Turn away from your worthless religion and gods and turn to the living God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and everything in them. Do you see what he's saying? There's one living God, and so the rest are dead. There's one God who made everything, not all these other gods who made all different bits and pieces of the world. No, one God made it all. And that's the way it is, Paul says. See, sometimes I wonder. Tell me if you what you think about this later, if you want. But sometimes I wonder, from time to time, about how Christians, how we, often think and feel about the different expressions of religion we see around the place. So, so think if you if you travel to another country, if you do that, or maybe you see this in Australia as well, and you do the tourist thing, and you go around and you see the attractions. How do you feel when those attractions, the tourist destinations, are temples and shrines and statues of idols and religions that you see just all around the place, that those are the places people want to visit? How do you feel about that? Or if you travel to somewhere like Europe where there's these massive cathedrals and monuments to Jesus, but inside no one ever listens to Jesus' word or obeys him. Think of when you walk through Westfield and you see the worship of the God of money. Think as you scroll through social media and you see the worship of the God of self. When you see those expressions of worship, of religion, how does it affect you, as a follower of Jesus, as someone who's turned to the living God? This is something I wonder about because I fear that sometimes we don't have that right view of God—that that He is holy. That he alone is God. And that right view of Jesus as Lord and Judge and King. The right view of God, of Jesus, that would then make us turn away from those worthless things. And not appreciate those attractions, those tourist destinations that our world seems to enjoy. Sometimes I think we shouldn't visit them. Or at least we should acknowledge them for what they are. Tributes to false gods. See, it's not wrong to appreciate human ingenuity or invention or skill or art. Those things are wonderful. The scriptures tell us that those things are God's gift to us by his grace. But when those things are made and used for the worship of false gods, when those things keep people bound by Satan and keep people blind from the truth of Jesus and his gospel, when those things rob the glory of the one true God, shouldn't we shudder like, like Paul and Barnabas? Shouldn't we tear our clothes? Shouldn't we think those things are worthless? Those statues, those religious beliefs, those practices, shouldn't they be turned away from entirely? Shouldn't we long for people to come to the knowledge of the truth instead? See, learn about religions if you want. I did that in high school. Learn about religions if you want, and I have done it since as well. Understand them, observe them if you want. Engage with people about these things who are from these religions if you want. But do so with with all humility and gentleness and with great respect. Christians are not better than other people. It's not like we're smarter. No, it is only by God's grace that we know the truth, that we are just sinners trying to encourage other sinners to know the one true God. By all means, do those things... But have it firm in your mind that that as you look at those religions, they are worthless. Have it firm in your mind. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. And grieve for a world lost in sin and idolatry. Look at how Paul puts it in verse 16. He says, In past generations he allowed all the nations to go their own way. That's what the religions of the world are. God allowing humanity to make up their own gods and truths. But Paul says, and this is another big thing he says in his short, desperate sermon. Look at verse 17. See, he doesn't just say, that's worthless. He says, there's a living God. Turn to him. And he says, look at verse 17. He, God, did not leave himself without a witness. Since he did what is good by giving you rain from heaven and fruitful seasons and satisfying your hearts with food and happiness. See, the last part of his message is that God is still kind to humanity, even though we've turned against him. God testifies that he exists and he's good by the good things that he gives to humanity. He sends rain on the earth and the crops grow and people eat the food of the land and there is happiness in the world. Our world is in many ways dark Uh, And a difficult place. But amazingly, God does give good things to humanity, despite our rejection of Him. Humanity only lives and thrives because God is gracious and does kind things for us. See, this is Paul saying those things that you thought were from Zeus or Hermes, they're not from Him. They're actually from the one true God. He made everything and He gives you good things. Turn to Him, He even gave you His Son. Look at verse 18, Paul and Barnabas, they can barely stop the crowd and the next incredible thing happens. Another opposite event happens. See, they go from worshipping Paul to killing him. Look at verse 19. See, the Jews who had plotted to kill him before in the previous towns, they've caught up with him in Lystra. They get there and they whip the crowds into an even greater frenzy and then they pelt stones at Paul. That's what they think he deserves for speaking this message of grace. They don't want Paul. They don't want Jesus competing with them. And so they batter his body until they think he's dead. And they toss him out. Job done. Or or so they think. Because then the next incredible thing happens in Lystra. Uh, Look at verse 20 with me. I'll read it out. After the disciples surrounded him, Paul and his body is still and lifeless, all of a sudden he got up and went into the town, the very town where he was just stoned, and the next day, he left with Paul and Barnabas. Sorry, he left with Barnabas for Derby. See, I think that this actually reads as another miracle of Jesus. Uh, maybe, maybe, just maybe, he survived the stoning. But it's a miracle that he then got up and, and walked 120 kilometres to the next town. How did he do that? I think it's a miracle of Jesus. But even if it's not a miracle of Jesus, we're meant to see the perseverance of Paul. His determination, the people of Derby need to know Jesus. If, if Lystra doesn't want to hear it, I'm going to Derby. They need to know about him. We meant to see the perseverance of Paul and even more, the power of the gospel that motivated him. It was the message of grace he wanted to preach so that more people would know that grace of Jesus. So then uh, Luke tells us briefly now about uh, the return journey back to Antioch, where they started. We're not going to look at it now. Uh, You can read it for yourself again later. But what we see is Paul and Barnabas, they loop back through the towns they've just been to, through the towns where they've just been persecuted and where they've planted churches. And they encourage those churches until they get to their home base back in Antioch, Syrian Antioch, there in the east. So that's the quick wrap-up of that section But as we bring it together and and wrap up, there's two things I think we can draw from this chapter and from those last verses that we didn't delve into. See, what should we take from a chapter like this? There's two things, two big things I think we need to do to live in light of these words. See, number one, the chapter encourages us to rejoice in God's word, God's work, and the gospel of grace. See, Phil said it last week, I challenge you not to be excited about a chapter like this. If you love the Lord Jesus, if you love his gospel, the message of his grace, then rejoice that his message goes out in power and saves people. Praise God that he worked in those towns and showed his kindness to those who turned and believed. Praise God that he still does so today. We're the example of that, aren't we? Praise God. And we can do that in a thousand ways every day, rejoice in God's work. But verse 27 shows us a way that I want to draw out. So look at verse 27 with me. It says, After Paul and Barnabas, they arrived back in Antioch and they gathered the church together. They reported everything that God had done with them and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. Now, did that sound familiar to you at all? Have you ever experienced an event like that? I hope you have. Because that's what we do here, isn't it? Did you know that it's verses like this that that mean we have link missionaries? Missionaries with CMS, the Church Missionary Society. And did you know that the the reason our missionaries come back every three years and we hear from them and we pray for them is because of verses like this and the pattern we see here. See, the whole church gathered to hear what, what God had done through Paul and Barnabas on their journey, and they did that to rejoice and thank God. So, can we need to take that encouragement from this, I think. Let's have the same zeal when our missionaries return. In a few weeks' time, we're going to send off Lama, our newest missionary, to proclaim Jesus in Vietnam. Can I urge you, please don't think, oh, that's a mission night on, on a Wednesday night. I don't have to go to that one. I can miss that one. No, we rejoice in God's work. It is our joy, it is our job as the church to send people out to proclaim Jesus and the message of his grace to support them, to pray for them. When we have a chance to hear from our missionaries and support them, let's grab that opportunity with two hands. That's what this chapter encourages us in, to rejoice in God's work in the world. But the second thing it shows us is how we persevere through persecution. See, just look at verse 22 with me. As Paul and Barnabas, they looped back through the towns, this is what they did. Verse 22, they strengthened the disciples by encouraging them to continue in the faith and by telling them, it is necessary to pass through many troubles on our way into the kingdom of God. What were the troubles that the Apostle Paul had just faced, being stoned and left for dead? That's what he faced. What do you face? What could happen to us? We don't know. Paul says, Jesus is worth it. Paul says the message of his grace is good enough to hold on to through those struggles, through that persecution. So persevere in faith. That's the message of of Acts 14. Keep going despite the the persecution or the potential danger. What can man do to you if Jesus is for you, if you've got eternal life with him? I think this chapter also helps us to persevere in speaking because that's what Paul and Barnabas did. They were boldly speaking, evangelizing, proclaiming the good news wherever they went, whatever they faced. God opens the door of faith in every place as people turn and hear and believe in Jesus. Shouldn't we be stirred up to do the same, to speak in the same manner as Paul and Barnabas? How can we not? Let's pray. Our gracious Father, what wonderful words you've given us in Acts 14. We praise you that Paul and Barnabas stood firm for the Lord Jesus in all those towns despite the awful things that were done to them. We thank you that it was all in your control and that even now our lives are in your hands because you are the one who holds on to us and will keep us safe to your eternal life even if we go through many troubles on our way. We pray that you would give us the determination, the zeal of Paul and Barnabas to speak your words, to see the door of faith open, in the hearts and minds of people that we know and father help us to hold on to that message and rejoice in it always and we pray in Jesus name amen